My name is Bethany Bondi. I'm a women's health nurse practitioner. That's my certification. I have a master's degree in nursing. I was a labor and delivery nurse for 12 years. My name is Kelsey Eichler, and I am a NICU nurse. Um, I've only been in the NICU for the last year, um, but I have been a nurse for eight years and have my bachelor's degree in nursing. So, so my first um, pregnancy was a high-risk pregnancy. They rushed me in for that emergency C-section, and my life was at risk. Um, my husband didn't know if I would survive my C-section. He didn't know if our son would survive even. Um, but they had given me those steroids. They had been watching me and the safest thing for both of us was to give us life. I recovered very quickly in um, you know, over a week's time and my son is a thriving three and a half year old um, born at 29 weeks. Literally, I remember the, my last thoughts as I was laying on that table about to go under, just get my baby out, just get my baby out. You know, like they were trying to tell me, just think happy thoughts about your baby. And I knew that he needed life. He needed to get out of me as fast as possible in order to save his life, and, and they did, so. When they talk about the late term abortion, it's anywhere from 24 weeks and after. Babies can survive. I've seen them survive as young as 23 weeks. The physicians I work with say that at once they hit 28 weeks, that is a really good thing. When I was coming off orientation, we had a 23-weeker. She just had her first birthday, and she's like a thriving little one-year-old, you know, learning, starting to put food in her mouth and crawling. And um, her parents have had a very difficult road for a year, but you would never know looking at her if they never told you their story that she was a 23-week preemie. They can hear the parents' voice. We always tell them to talk to them. Um, we use methods of containment and touch to calm a baby. The type of medical intervention that we can give these, these children is absolutely miraculous and mind-blowing to me, even after living a life in the NICU <laughs> with my 30-week-old baby. Now, being that nurse that's taking care of some of those, you know, micro preemies, it's miraculous what these babies will do, what they will fight for. And I always try to encourage the parents, you know, and say, your baby was given a special drive in its life to survive because you see these little babies that are, they're just fighters. They're always moving, they're, you know, like they just, God gives them just this extra, and I see it in my son too, like, just that extra push in life to just fight because they have to, like that's their only option. With our interventions and with Jesus, I have literally seen miracles every day. I had a 35-weeker and I just went into spontaneous labor. I was a labor and delivery nurse at the time and I walked into labor and delivery and I remember saying to the nurses that I worked with, I said, I think I might be in labor. Talagist walking into my husband and I and saying, the next six hours will tell if your baby lives or dies. Point blank, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, in reality, God's really the one in control. Yeah, he's given us medical knowledge and the technologies, but in what we do with those, in reality, it's all in God's hands. It's only way to communicate is obviously to cry and tell us that something's wrong. So as a, as a mother, as a parent, you are that source for that baby. Like you are its food source, you are its heat. So that is why immediately skin to skin is so important. It it knows your heartbeat, it knows the sound of your voice, it can smell you. All of those things are what is gonna bring comfort and how that baby will survive and thrive. You know, obviously, there's ways that we take care of a baby if it doesn't have a parent, like we give it blankets, we put clothes on it, we give it a bottle of formula if there's no breast milk, you know, like the way it was designed, the way that 
us mothers are able to take care of our child is to hold it, to nurse it, to, you know, comfort it. You kind of bond with them while you're taking care of them. And there's just certain situations that just affect you more emotionally. One of the coolest things I notice is sometimes if people are patient enough, they'll lay the baby on the mom's abdomen. And people may have seen videos of this, but the baby actually, it's instinct to just kind of eventually crawl up to the mom and it will go right to the breast and it will try to like start nursing right away. I just think that's kind of a cool instinct. Obviously it's God given. Even the dads talking to the babies, they know their personalities, they know how to calm them and if the babies are fussing, they'll just stop crying. Kind of they'll listen and they kind of like look around like whose voice is that? You know, I really believe that they're probably familiar with it. God has put that child in your life for a very specific reason, and he's going to equip you no matter what you're gonna face um, to take care of that child. I think for the church community, do everything in your power to uphold and love and pray and support families that are going through early gestational births or a death of a child. So that for that single mom out there, or even a mom who has an unexpected pregnancy, you know, consider adoption because it is an alternative and you, even though you're struggling with that, it can make other families' lives very complete because they've been praying for a child for a long time. Friends at both of our campuses, I am uh, so glad that you're here. Uh, this is not an easy conversation to have. Uh, this issue of abortion or choice or anything else you want to call it, uh, it is front and, and center in our culture. And it is not a debate that we can afford to ignore as a church, as believers. Uh, it is part of the world around us. It, it's in the news. It's everywhere. It divides people. Uh, it divides homes. It divides communities. Uh, it, it, it has divided our nation. And not only is it very controversial, it is very, very personal, isn't it? It's a very personal issue. Uh, my guess is that in a room like this, uh, really at both of our campuses, that uh, this is an issue that has touched many people's lives, even in these seats. Uh, that there are women among us who at some point, for some reason in their life, they, they chose to end a pregnancy through this thing called abortion. And there are men in this room who have been part of an abortion in one way or another as well. And there are grandparents uh, here who may have hoped that, that something would go one way, but it ended up going a completely another way, and now they, they don't have that grandchild that they had once hoped for in their life. And I don't know your story, friends, but I, knew, I do know that this part of your story is very, very painful. I talk to people all the time, uh, women who had an abortion 20, 30, even 40 years ago. And they just pull into my little office and their hearts just come unraveled. And, and they talk about the pain of it all. They, they still remember it like it was yesterday, even though it's been decades. They, they wrestle through it even to this day, years and years and years later. And, and the same thing goes for men. This is a very personal and very painful issue. And so my hope is, I want you to know this. I want you to hear me. My hope is not to 
bring guilt or, or pain or shame in any single way. My, my desire to tackle this is that we would bring hope, that we would bring grace and clarity to this very important issue. My hope is, is that we drive the heart of God towards those he loves the most, his greatest concern in all of his, his, all of his creation is humanity. And my hope is, is that we will drive into that love, that care that God has for the human story. I hope that we can all walk away with understanding just how good and gracious God is. And my hope is, is that we will walk away understanding what God understands, that we will value what God values, and that we will love what God loves, and that we will protect what God protects, and that we will choose what God chooses. So my hope is, is that you will have an open heart to this. You ready? You ready? Let's pray and ask God at both of our campuses to speak to us and then we'll jump in. Father in heaven, uh, with a humble heart, full of fear, really, and trepidation about speaking into this issue, but also with a heart full of resolution, I pray God for every single person who hears my voice on this topic. I pray God that they would know that you are good, that you are gracious, that you are a loving God, but you are also a God who will not be mocked. That, that you cannot turn your head forever against the sin that we so easily entangle ourselves with. I pray that we would sense your, your authority and your presence in this space today, God. At both of our campuses, I pray that you would speak into our lives. And so we say it like this, speak, oh God, Speak, oh God, on this very important matter. For your child is listening. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, David Boonen, he is a professor at the University of Colorado. A few years back, he wrote a book uh, called A Defense of Abortion. A Defense of Abortion is a very influ influential book on this debate. Uh, it has become sort of like the Bible uh, for those who defend abortion rights. Uh, when he wrote this book, he was 100% completely uh, pro-choice, and I don't know where he stands today, but I'm guessing not much has changed. Uh, but very near the beginning of this little book, he writes a very, very chilling passage that I want to read to you. And, and my hope is, is that you will let the depth of, of these words just land on you. Just let these words speak into your heart as this man goes on to write a book called A Defense of Abortion. Boonin writes this, quote, on my desk in my office where the, this book, A Defense of Abortion, was written uh, and revised, there are several pictures of my son Eli. In one, he is gleefully dancing on the sand along the Gulf of Mexico. The cool ocean breeze is wreaking havoc with his wispy hair. Um, in a second photo, he is tentatively seated in the grass of his grandparents' backyard, still working to master the feat of sitting up on his own. In, in a third photo, he is only a few weeks old, clinging firmly to the arms that are holding him and still wearing the tiny hat for preserving body heat that he wore home from the hospital. Through all of these remarkable changes that these pictures preserve, he remains unmistakably the same little boy. Now listen. In the top drawer of my desk, though, I keep another picture of Eli. This picture was taken at 24 weeks before 
he was born. The sinogram image is a bit murky, but it reveals clearly enough a small head tilted back slightly, an arm raised up and bent with his hand pointing back toward his face and a thumb extended toward the mouth. There is no doubt in my mind, this author writes, there is no doubt in my mind that this picture too shows the same little boy at at a very early stage of development. And there is no doubt that the position I defend in this book entails that it would be, listen, morally permissible to end his life at that point. So what makes us, you and me, what gives us value? Uh, What gives us worth? And, And really that's the only question in my mind that swirls around this entire matter. Uh, I know that people say that abortion is very, very complicated, and some people say, well, uh, they've made a legal issue out of it, they've made a political issue out of it, they've made a woman's right issue out of it, a medical issue, or even a moral issue out of it, But, but I don't think it's really that complicated. I really don't. And my hope is, over the next few minutes, that I can help us to understand that it is really not that complicated of an issue. And I realize, friends, that there are folks, good folks, with all kinds of thoughts and positions on this issue called abortion. But, but no matter how you come into this room, no matter what is already decided in your heart, listen, friends, my hope is, is that you will hear me out and that you will hear me to the end with an open soul to let God speak into your life. I don't pretend to be God, but I know that his spirit wants to speak into this space today. And my hope is, that you will not argue mentally with every statement that I say because I know how I I am, right? If I disagree with you and I know that I disagree with you coming into the argument, I am already waiting to talk. I am already formulating my defense. And I'm just gonna ask that every single one of us at both of our campuses and those joining us online, that you will not do that. That you will just hear and hold back judgment until the end. That you'll be listening for God's voice to speak to you. Because here is the problem with Boonin's position, the guy who wrote this book. He's very influential in this debate. If humans, this is the problem, if humans only have fundamental value because of some characteristic they they possess by varying degrees, those with more or greater value of that characteristic have more or less value, right? Does that make sense? Think about this. Boonin asserts that the depth of physical development and thinking abilities is... Uh, is what constitutes someone's value. But, but what about the brilliant young doctor who has life in front of them in every single way, is just aspiring in every single way and she gets in a car accident. And immediately everything that was of great value to her life is taken away. And all of a sudden she's injured or paralyzed in some way. Does that change her human value? Come on, does it? What if it's even worse than that? What if there is something in this accident that changes the way she thinks and she now thinks like a two-year-old or maybe even worse? Does that change her, her human value? Does she no longer have the right to life and protection that you and I have? Let, let me state it another way. There is no relevant difference between the embryo that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at the earlier stage 
of your development. Now, let me just say that again because some of you are going, wow, that was so deep. I need help with that. Let me just say it again for you. I will help you. Okay, now listen. There is no relevant difference between the embryo that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at an earlier stage of your development. So I, I don't think the issue is really as complicated as our politicians and the people and the culture around us really are trying to make it out to be. I just think we need to clarify the issue. And people like me in the pro-life kind of community, people like me would, who oppose abortion rights on demand contend that abortion unjustly takes the life of a defenseless human being that has the same value that I have. And this is the issue that we really need to talk about. about. Is the unborn a member of the human family? That is the issue that we need to wrestle with. And really, that's the only issue that we have to come to an answer. Because if so, if so, if it is a human, killing him or killing her to benefit others is a serious moral wrong that must be dealt with. Am I right? If that is the answer, that they are part of the human story, that they are part of the human equation, then it is a moral wrong that the rest of us have to deal with. The taking of an innocent, distinct human being with his or her own inherent worth or value, friends, I think most of us would, just, would, would never justify. We would always say that is wrong. But on the other hand, listen, but on the other hand, if the unborn are truly not human, if they are just a, a group of cells or a blob of some kind, if they're nothing more than a tissue mass growing inside of a woman, an extension of her own body, then killing them or ending their development at any stage for any reason requires no more moral justification than you having a tooth yanked. Am I right? If that is the difference, right? If, if in one sense we say this is a human life, then it is a moral wrong that we have to deal with. Would you not agree? No matter what your position is, if it is a human life, you would have to deal with that, Right? But if it's not a human life, then you don't need to worry about it at all. Then truly, you can turn away from it and not care at all. But I would argue that human rights is the issue at hand. That is really the issue. Is the unborn part of the human story with an unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness just like the rest of us? And I would argue, and this is gonna get a little bit tough in the room, I would argue that the arguments are not based on choice or privacy issues at all, that that issue or the argument of choice 100% misses the argument entirely. That's not the issue uh, because we understand that we have certain choices in life and we also understand that certain choices are limited. If you were to believe the culture around us, you would say that, that you could never infringe upon any uh, woman's decision, right? Because a woman has the right to choose and the very basics of that start with her body. But listen, friends, we would argue against a woman's right to choose in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, we would argue against our choices to choose in a whole bunch of ways because we would never ever try to justify a woman beating her toddler to death because it's her choice, right? We would say that's unjustifiable. That's a baby that has human value and human rights. Or, or we would never justify someone leaving a six-month-old out in the bitter cold that we we're experiencing, letting that baby die. We would say that is completely inhumane, that it is, that is not a choice to do that, that we pull the choice back from people in those matters. Am I right? Uh, and no matter how defenseless they are, they merit the full protection 
and equality under the law. We would say that just because a baby or an infant cannot fight back or run from an abuser or defend herself in any way, we would say that she still deserves the right to life and protection, would we not? Are we all on the same page? That we do limit choices in this world. Are we together on this? No matter what your position is, you do recognize that we do limit choices. Friends, listen, hear me on this. If the unborn is a human, like a baby, like a toddler, then, the, then the, they deserve the rest of us protecting them. Then they deserve the same rights afforded to you and me. And friends, really, this is what the debate is all about. What is the unborn? Is it a baby or is it not? If the unborns are a member of the human story, then, then we owe them something. Uh, several years ago, uh, Lynette and I were introduced to uh, this young lady. Uh, she was still uh, in high school. She was uh, coming out of her uh, 11th grade year. Uh, she was bright. She was talented. She was beautiful. Uh, she was athletic. She was uh, uh, aspiring in, in every single way. And she found herself pregnant. And uh, she was at the same uh, baby doctor that we were at. Uh, we had been trying to have a baby for... Uh, six or seven years, and we had our firstborn son, Zachary, and we were so excited, so we were in for the checkups and all the follow-up and all that kind of stuff, and we were pumped, and we had already decided that we were trying for baby number two at this point. It had been a little bit, uh, and we were so excited that thinking that maybe we would have another baby, and that is when we, we met this young lady, and so we were in the office one day, and she's sitting there, and we're sitting here, and you can't help but notice she looks a little bit frightened and she's alone and she doesn't really know what's going on. And so we kind of strike up this conversation with her and begin to build this little friendship with her and, and, and one thing kind of leads to another and we um, start showing this young lady concern and care and we begin to talk to her about the life uh, that was growing inside of her and the choices that she had to make going uh, forward. And in this whole process, um, we found out that she was very confused, and that maybe uh, she was, I would say she was very abortion-minded at this point, and her parents uh, were hardly engaged with any of it, literally just hardly engaged with any of it, and I remember uh, taking this young lady out with my wife to a local restaurant, and we were um, sitting there at the table, and it was a very emotional thing, and this was on the heels of many other conversations, and I remember just pleading with her for the case for life. That she was already four or five months along and that it wouldn't be very much longer and that she could do something very beautiful and she could choose life and that she could potentially even place that baby out for adoption if that serves her well or we'd get some people to maybe rally around her and help her in some point. And at one point in the conversation, um, I'm not sure if this was right or wrong, but I laid $5,000 on the table. And I said, every need you will have for this baby will be taken care of. I'll make sure of it. But you need to choose life. And then after that, maybe Lynette and I would adopt that baby, or if you want somebody else to adopt it, or if you want to raise it, it is totally up to you, no pressure. But we are just really concerned that you have a pathway to choose life. And I remember asking her uh, what she was going to do. Well, a little while later, she says to us in another conversation that it was her senior year. She was very excited about her senior year. She was very athletic. She played on the basketball team. 
and she hoped to make the senior varsity women's basketball team for her high school. And I remember her saying, and it still haunts me in Lynette to this day, that having a baby would ruin her senior year of basketball. And for the matter of convenience, she chose to end the life of her baby. Friends, to me, choice is not the issue. The only real issue that humanity has to settle, that our culture has to settle, that you and me have to settle is this. Is this baby a baby? Is this thing, what is unborn inside, is it a baby? And, and I get it. Some people in the room, you're already going, oh, Pastor Jay, I love you and I respect you. Um, but man, you're just a little off here because there is a difference between, between taking the life of a toddler and taking the life of an unborn, whatever you call it, in the womb. There's just a difference. And friends, that's the issue, right? That we need to wrestle with. Is there truly a difference? Or are, a difference, or are both part of, the, of, of humanity? Are they both life that deserve to be protected? I think it was a very famous doctor who said it like this. I think his name was Dr. Seuss. And he said, a life is a life. A person, anybody remember this? Is a person no matter how, come on, small. A person is a person no matter how small. Let me tell you something, friends, and I'm very serious about this. I am completely pro-choice when it comes to women. Uh, women can choose all kinds of things in life, and I support 99.9% .9 of women choosing virtually anything for their life. They can choose uh, their pathway for their career. They can choose their education or not to have an education. They can choose a husband or not to have a husband. Uh, they can choose uh, to go to college or not go to college. They, they can choose to wear tennis shoes or dress any way they want. There's all kinds of choices that, that I would say I am completely pro-choice. I am behind women 100%. People think, well, this is that you just want to somehow control women. I don't want that at all. I don't want that at all. But again, we stop all kinds of choices in life, right? I want, I want you to think about this. You can't drive as fast as you want to drive. Ugh. Right? Uh, you, you can't steal what you want to why? What? Steal. You can't do that. Why? Because it hurts somebody else in the process. You can't set your neighbor's house on fire no matter how annoying they are. Right? Because why? Because it will hurt somebody else. We, we simply draw some lines as a, as a society and we say some things are simply wrong. I am totally pro-choice when it comes to so many decisions that Americans can make. I am probably on the far end of saying get rid of government on a whole bunch of stuff. Get rid of human pressures on a whole bunch of stuff. You can do what you want in a whole bunch of ways. But there are some areas that we simply say that we won't allow somebody else to choose something that will hurt somebody else. If the only issue that really matters is that are they a human being, then let's begin to make a case for this. That a life is a life no matter how small. Now I want to begin to do this for you and I know all automatically, listen, there are many of you in this room who are way smarter than me. You're way more educated in this area than I am. And I realize that this will not be a perfect case for you but I think it's a strong case. And I think it's a case that is well worth listening to. And I hope that what we're gonna share over the next few minutes will help define this issue in your mind. Now, as a church, you come to a church like this, and my guess is, is that you would expect that the preacher at some point would whip out a Bible 
and give you a bunch of church uh, verses or Bible verses about why God chooses life. Would you expect that? Would that be a fair assumption? When you come into, would it be a fair assumption if you come into church? Okay, yes, I think so. Uh, well, uh, and that's true. This is true. I could turn to the scriptures and it would be unequivocal that God values life. That, that humanity is the peak of his creation. That it is his great desire to birth humanity into the world, to do something great in our world through the human story. There's no doubt about that. The scripture says this, that you were fashioned in your mother's womb, that God knew you there in the darkness of the depths of your soul of humanity. When there was just a twinkle in the daddy's eye, God says, I knew you. I knew you. Um, but if we relied on the Bible today, um, that would be like preaching to the choir because a whole bunch of you who believe all that stuff about the Bible already value this, already go, yep, I'm already there. God said it, that settles it. I'm good enough with that, boom. And that's a good thing, that's okay. Uh, but my hope is I wanna talk to the unconvinced for a little bit. And so if it's okay with you, I'm just gonna put the Bible aside for a little bit. And we're gonna talk about science and medical issues because I think that is really where, where the debate rages in our culture. And so here is what science tells us. Are you ready for this? Here is what science tells us that if you look at the greater body of work, it will tell you that upon conception, the human DNA is complete and it carries everything that makes you, you. A life is a life no matter how small. Dr. Keith Moore, he is a scientist and a researcher. He's got a book called The Developing Human, Clinical Oriented Embryology. Those are big words, okay, embryology. And this is what he writes in this book. It's so good, he says this. He's a researcher, he spent his whole life, PhD level researcher, he has spent his entire life just on the growth of that nine months inside a woman's uh, womb. He understands this probably better than most human beings would ever understand this. And he writes this, a zygote, which is a fertilized egg, is the beginning of a new human being. Human development begins at fertilization, the process during which a male sperm unites with a female gamete, an egg, to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique, listen, as a unique individual. Now, isn't this an amazing thought? Think about this, that you were you before anybody even knew you were you. Think about how crazy this is. That you were you when you were a singular cell that is smaller than what could fit on a tip of a pin. And God knew you. And that was the beginning of you. There was just, you, where you are now, everything that's gone before you is just a smaller version of you. Think about how powerful uh, this is. At conception, you were complete. All you knew, needed was t time to grow. And some of you need to stop that growing if you know exactly what I mean, right? <laughs> right? Time to grow. But listen, friends, there is no conflict between the Bible and science in this way. None at all, because God says, uh, in, in the womb, I began to form you. You were you in the womb. I began to form you there. It's incredible, right? Uh, Dr. Alan Guttmacher uh, was once the president, listen to this, of Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest provider of abortion. Now listen, before he figured out that he could become filthy rich through the termination of babies, uh, he was once sort of pro-life. And he actually wrote a book that was called, about the human development in the womb. And, and the book was actually called Life in the Making. And he, began, he became president of 
Planned Parenthood eventually. Now listen to this. This is what he writes in his own book. This is way before uh, he went over to Planned Parenthood. He wrote this, quote, quote, this all seems so simple and evident that life begins at conception, that it is difficult to picture a time when it wasn't part of the common knowledge. Whew. Earlier I said that there is no relevant difference, no morally justifiable difference between the embryo that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at the earlier stage. Right? And this guy just said that. Uh, listen to this. Um, an author, philosopher, scientist named uh, Stephen Schwartz once said it like this. He writes, differences of size, level of development, environment, and degrees of dependency are not relevant to this debate. He, he says that human rights ought to be extended to all human beings regardless of size, development, stage of, of, of development, their environment, the environment they're going to be born into, dependency. He, he was saying what Dr. Seuss said in a child's book, right? A life is a life no matter how small. No matter how small. I want you to think about this. Let's, let's walk through these things uh, differently. We can say, and you hear people say this, uh, that at a certain stage of human development, a baby is just too small to worry about. So does size really determine value? Hear me, friends. The size really determine value. It, friends, listen, it's true that embryos are smaller than newborns and toddlers are smaller than teenagers and teens are smaller than adults, but why is that even relevant to this argument? What difference does it make when it comes to what is valuable and what is not? Do we really want to say that size is the determiner of human worth? That would make some of you in this room worth a lot more than others in this room. Right? And that would change the human story across the board. Um, do we really want to say that, that, that size is a determiner? Think, about, think this through a little bit. If at, if at conception, everything that makes you is already present, then either you have value or you don't. And the size in which it is in your life and the stage in which it is really doesn't matter that much. What difference does it make? That would make tall people more valuable than short people. That would make fat people more valuable than skinny people. That would make bald people like my friend over here uh, a lot less valuable than some of y'all with a whole set of hair. Right? Because size really doesn't determine value, does it? At five weeks gestation, listen, at five weeks into a pregnancy, long before the average woman ever knows that they're pregnant, the brain, now with our new technology, we can tell that there's already a brain and brain waves developing and a spinal cord is starting to develop. At five weeks, this is crazy. Some of you need to start using your brain a little bit more, but that's a whole other talk that we gotta go into. But, but at seven or eight weeks, listen to this, at seven or eight weeks, modern technology tells us that the human heartbeat can be sensed and by the eighth week, the rhythm is starting to be found. The rhythm your heart rhythm that will carry the rest of your life is already starting to be found in eight weeks. A lot of people don't even know they're pregnant by eight weeks. That same technology says that at 10 weeks, there's eyelids and there's little fingers and little toes starting to be formed. Uh, that that uh, little guys and friends, that, that to me says a life is a life no matter how small and that little guys deserve what the big guys deserve. Life, time to grow. Uh, think about this idea a little bit. We can say, does the level of development determine value? It's true that embryos and fetuses are less development, are developed in adults that they'll become one day. That's, that's absolutely true. But why does, this, why does this have any relevance to the debate? Why does development have any relevance to this debate at all? Is it true that a four-year-old little girl is way less developed than a 14-year-old little girl? Is it right? 
and that a 14 little girl is way less developed than a 24 year old little girl. Am I right? So what changes the value? Does that have any relevance to this debate at all? Friends, I would argue that it doesn't. You hear all kinds of arguments about, well, when does life become life? Some would argue that viability determines life. But before 20 weeks gestation, right, they'll say that a mother can, uh, a baby cannot uh, survive outside of its mother's womb. But let me ask you this. What baby six months after they're born can survive without their mother? Come on. They don't. What do babies do? What do they... They, they sit around and grow. And what do they need to become, quote, viable? Time. That's it. All they do is sit there and grow, and they are 100% dependent upon who? Mom, dad, people to love them and to protect them. All kinds of arguments about this. And the first nine months of growth uh, is inside of a mother, right? And the next 18 years are outside of a mother. And you look at an 18-year-old and you go, what 18-year-old girl can survive without their mother? <laughs> That's a joke. But, it, but it's true, right? <laughs> Babies just lie there and grow and they just need time. And so do toddlers. And so do children. And so do teens. And so do young adults. And dare I even say, who's in the room better now than they were 10 years ago? In a lot of ways. How many have improved your life? It just takes time to grow sometimes. And so some people say this, well, well we can ask the question, well, does self-awareness, self-awareness determine value? Really, I had four babies in my home, and as far as I can tell, when they're in that whole like baby young stage, all they do is scream, poop, and pee everywhere. That is not very self-aware. It's just not, right? Uh, some folks say that you have to have cognitive thinking patterns to be human. And this is all in these books, right? You read this, you hear this on the news, they have to have cognitive thinking uh, patterns in order to have human value. Pause right there. Anybody ever have a teenage boy? <laughs> teenage boys that I know, and I have a few of them, they will climb to the highest bridge and they will jump off into a water bucket three feet deep. That is not too cognitive. That is not too much of any thoughts going on up there, if you know what I mean. Uh, but like an early embryo, uh, think, about, think about this idea of, of human development. It takes time to be self-aware, but that self-awareness comes and goes at all stages of our life. Has anybody ever known somebody with Alzheimer's? Come on, have you? Or somebody who has slipped into what we would think to be an irreversible coma? Just because you cannot exercise your full mental capacities, does that change your value as a member of humanity? It might change your financial value to society. It might change the value that you bring to the cleanup and organization of your home. But does that change the fundamental value of your human story? Does it? I don't think so. I watch my stepfather, Jerry, um, watch his dad, my grandpa slipped into um, Alzheimer's and it was bad. And if you've ever seen this, it was brutal. It is a brutal, brutal thing. And I watched Jerry love his father through this as much as I've ever seen two human beings love each other. And my grandpa's lack of ability to cognitively think did not diminish his value to my family at all. Not one bit. 
Where does human value come from? Um, I want to I talk about this whole other value. Uh, self-awareness does not give us value. And other people talk about this. Does environment uh, determine value? Does environment, you know, uh, being in one place versus another place determine value? Um, the question I would have, are the people born, these little babies born in Haiti, or are these little babies that are born in into that, you know, we have that little school that we help with big time in Kibera, which is one of the poorest, it is the poorest place on planet Earth in Kenya, Africa. Are those babies less valuable than the babies born to us in Downriver? Are they? I don't think so. I mean, they may be less valuable to you personally because you have not been given the, the charge of care over them. But when it comes to the human equation, are they any less valuable? Friends, are they? No. If that is true, then how can a journey of about eight inches through a birth canal suddenly change the essential value of a newborn child or an unborn child? Think about this. How can they go through eight inches through the birth canal from non-human to human all of a sudden? Think about this. Nobody in the final moments of, of birth, right, when, when the baby's in the mother's womb, when the baby finally makes that eight-inch passage out of the mother's womb, they finally go, oh my goodness, it's a miracle from a blob to a baby. Nobody does that. We know that that eight-inch journey does not change a thing with that baby. Not one thing. So does environment really matter? If the answer is no, then, then we've got to deal with this. Uh, do you guys remember the story? It came out a few years back. There was an abortion doctor in Pennsylvania. Anybody remember this guy? His name was Gosnell. Anybody follow the news? This was all over. This was amazing. Uh, and, and he went to prison just recently for murdering a bunch of babies that were born alive. He was an abortion doctor, um, but he, he tended to let the babies be born in his clinic because he felt it was a little bit easier to just birth the babies and to kill them afterwards. And, and so he made this argument in court to the judicial system saying that it was actually less painful on the birthing mother and easier on me for being a doctor to simply let them give birth and then to terminate the baby. And this is what he said, quote, the same end is achieved either way. The same end is achieved either way. Friends, this is one of the things that about this whole New York bill and this Vermont bill that's coming out, the one that was proposed in uh, uh, Virginia as well. If you follow the news at all, there was uh, some major legislation proposed just in the last week or two. And this is what got, has a whole bunch of us completely outraged, especially the bill that passed in New York. Uh, the governor himself said that Gosnell would not have been prosecuted in New York because our law protects uh, those involved with an abortion at any level all the way through, no matter what happens to the mother or the baby. The issue is protecting the doctor who's trying to get rich off of it. Whew. Friends, friends, are we even human anymore? Did you watch the news? People standing and cheering for a law that says, even if the baby comes out, we don't necessarily have to save it. It's alive. It is breathing, crying, whimpering, clawing for his mother. And a law is passed that a doctor has to do nothing to help that baby. 
A whole host of po uh, politicians have argued for the right to choose right up to the very point of a baby being partially born. Our former president, along with many other politicians, have defended the practice called partial birth abortion where a baby, because it is easier and less messy on the doctors, will birth a child up to the last part of its body being in the womb and kill it then. And we sit in silence. And somehow we think that this is just a abortion, uh, an abortion debate or a, debate, uh, a political debate between two parties that's out there. No, no, no. This has nothing to do with politics. This has everything to do with morality. This has everything to do with ethics. This has everything to do with life. And I'll say it again. A life is a life no matter how small. And, and some people say that the, 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 uh, does the, the degree of dependency determine the value of life. Think about this, the degree of dependency determine the value of life. And some people are saying, well, if a baby can't you know, survive or is gonna be dependent in some way, then that baby is not worth living. Let me tell you something. What about people like me? Do you know that I take four shots a day of insulin just to survive? If I don't take insulin, I'm dead in three or four weeks. I'm gone. Anybody else in the room on any medication to survive? Anybody? Does that make your life any less valuable because you're dependent? Does it? I don't think so. I, I, don't, I don't think so at all. Um, or let, let me go way out there, and this is probably gonna make some of y'all mad. I don't, probably already have, so I don't know if it matters. <laughs> but, but listen, I'm gonna just say this. I want you to hear me on this. The very same people who argue that, uh, that because a baby is dependent on his mother, thus he is a less than human, are the same crowd of people that often argue for more and more government dependency. And if somebody is dependent on the government for their food or for their shelter or for their livelihood, does that make them any less human or less valuable as a human? <sighs> Think about our parents when they grow old. They become dependent on us. And the life cycle switches so often. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden, you are the caregiver. You are the mom. And does that make your elderly parent any less valuable? Because they're dependent on you? I don't think so, friends. We need to be willing to deal as a church with the tough issues. And let me tell you something. It blows my mind. People still say, Pastor, why do you talk about these cultural issues? Can't we just talk about Jesus and the Bible and all that good stuff? This is about Jesus and the Bible. He is the giver of life. He is the creator of life. And if we believe that a baby is a baby, no matter how small, a life is a life, no matter how small, then we have to be engaged. It is a moral outrage that you and I cannot sit idly by anymore and just watch. We can't. So I want to show you something. And uh, it's possibly one of the uh, most boring uh, sections of video we've ever shown ever at Metro, and is not meant to gross anybody out. And this is a PG-13 experience. This is an adult experience. If you have children, uh, you may want to hide their ears from this. Uh, but this is a doctor who was an abortionist who had a change of heart. And he is testifying in front of the United States Congress. I want you to check this out. I only have five minutes, so I'm going to get right to it. Second trimester d &E abortions performed between roughly 14 and 24 weeks of gestation. Your patient today is 17 years old. She's 22 weeks pregnant. Her baby is the length of your hand plus a couple of inches. And she's been feeling her baby kick for the last several weeks. But she's asleep on an operating room table. You walk into that operating room scrubbed and gowned and after removing laminaria, 
you introduce a suction catheter into the uterus. This is a 14 French suction catheter. If she were 12 weeks pregnant or less, basically the width of your hand or smaller, you could basically do the entire procedure with this. But babies this big don't fit through catheters this size. After suctioning the amniotic fluid out from around the baby, you introduce an instrument called a sofa clamp. It's about 13 inches long. It's made of stainless steel. The business end of this clamp is about two and a half inches long and a half inch wide. There are rows of sharp teeth. This is a grasping instrument. When it gets a hold of something, it does not let go. A DNA procedure is a blind abortion. So picture yourself introducing this and grabbing anything you can blindly and pull, and I do mean hard, and out pops a leg about that big, which you put down on the table next to you. Reach in again, pull again, and pull out an arm about the same length, which you put down on the table next to you and use this instrument again and again to tear out the spine, the intestines, the heart and lungs. Head in the baby that size is about the size of a large plum. Can't see it, but you pretty good idea you've got it if you've got your instrument around something and your fingers are spread about as far as they go. You know you did it right if you crush down on the instrument and white material runs out of the cervix. That was the baby's brains. Then you could pull out skull pieces. And you have a day like I had a lot of times, sometimes a little face comes back and stares back at you. Congratulations, you just successfully performed a second trimester DNA abortion. You just affirmed her right to choose. One more question, Dr. Levitino. Why did you end your practice of doing abortions? I did over 1,200 abortions over a four-year period in private practice, not counting the ones that I did during my training. Um, I met my wife at, um, during my first year of training at Albany Medical Center. We got married about a year later and found that we had an infertility problem. After years of failed infertility treatment and several years trying to adopt a child, we were blessed with adopting a little girl that we named Heather in August of 1978. Um, as sometimes happens in those situations, my wife got pregnant the very next month and we had two children 10 months apart. Um, two months short of my daughter Heather's sixth birthday, she was killed in an auto accident and literally died in her arms in the back of an ambulance. Anyone who has children might think they have some idea of what that feels like, but unless you've been through it yourself, you have no idea whatsoever. Um, I know people find it hard to believe, but uh, what do you do after disaster? You bury your child and then you go back to your life. And I don't remember exactly how long it was after my daughter died that I showed up at Albany Medical Center OR number nine to perform my first second trimester d &E abortion. I wasn't thinking of it as anything special. This was routine to me. Um, but I reached in, literally pulled out an arm or leg, and got sick. You know, earlier on, I described stacking up body parts on the side of the table. It's not to, you know, gross people out, to use a simple term. When you do an, an abortion, you need to keep inventory. You have to make sure you get two arms and two legs and all the pieces. If you don't, your patient's going to come back infected, bleeding, or dead. Um, so I soldiered on and finished that abortion. And I know it sounds, as I said, hard for people to believe, but I'm, I'm telling you straight up my experience. You know, after over 1,200 abortions, first and second trimester up to 24 weeks and all the rest of it, and being very dedicated to it, for the first time in my life, I really looked. I really looked at that pile of body parts on the side of the table. And I didn't see her wonderful right to choose, and I didn't see all the money I just made. All I could see was somebody's son or daughter. And I stopped doing late-term abortions after that, and several months later stopped doing all abortions. I don't, uh, 
I don't know if I have the right to tell you to do anything. And I get it. You, you watch this kind of thing and you hear this kind of thing. You say, I'm not even sure what to do. I'm not even sure what I think about all this. Um, let, let me just paint a picture for you. If you were cruising down the highway, 60, 70 miles an hour, in the sun, you're driving right into the sun. You ever done this and you can't quite see, you know, because the sun's hitting you perfectly? Anybody ever had that experience? And let's just say you're cruising down the highway and you're just jamming, the radio's jamming, you're talking, having a good time, and you're, you know, just doing your thing. And all of a sudden, you see just on the edge of your uh, horizon type of view, you, you, you see like this thing in the road and you're not even like sure it is. You're like, hey, did you see that? I'm not even sure because the sun's hitting you and you're jamming, you have a good time. But as you kind of fly up toward this thing, like maybe a couple hundred feet out, you start to go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a baby carriage in the middle of the road right there. What would you do? What would you do? If you're any kind of human being at all, it wouldn't matter. You wouldn't go plow through it. You would, you would cruise to the left. You would cruise. You would ditch your car. You would hit the car next to you. Because why? You are not going to ram into a baby head on. We cannot sit idly by letting the world frame this as a right to choose. A life is a life, no matter how small. Friends, um, I want to end by showing you a video about the power of a choice. Um, that our choices really matter. And that there are some choices, listen to me, that are better than other choices. And this is a young lady uh, who I love with all of my heart, and I'm so proud of her. Um, this is the story of my daughter. Dear birth mom, I think about you often. I think of you when my birthday comes around every year on May 7th. I think of you when people say I look just like my mom and dad. I think of you when people ask where I got my singing voice from. I think of you often, and whenever I do, I am overwhelmed with thankfulness. You decided from the very beginning that my life was important. From the moment you decided to carry me for the next nine months to the day you bravely handed me over to a loving family, you put me first, and that means more to me than you will ever know. You were 17 years old, the age I am now, with the immense weight of another's life in your hands. I'm sure there was a moment, or many moments, where you sat alone with your thoughts. You held your hands to your stomach and looked at me, wondering if it was all worth it. If all the pain, the heartache, the stares, if it was all worth it. At 17, I can only imagine all the people telling you what they thought was best. All the people telling you it would just be easier to get an abortion. Telling you it's not really a baby, it's just a cluster of cells. Telling you you're throwing your future away if you do this. But at 17, you knew the value of life. You knew the human baby living inside you was worth it. You knew that I was worth it. Because of you, I have a dad who adores me. My dad is my rock. He's the strongest man I've ever known. He's been there at every moment cheering me on. And he gives me the best advice. He's one of the smartest people I know. He encourages me constantly and is my number one fan. He supports everything I do, and he is proud of me. He never stops reminding me of that. 
He is the best example of a godly man, and I look up to him in every way. My dad has loved me so deeply from the very beginning. He is the very best dad you could have trusted me to. Because of you, I have a mom who cares about me. You've never met her, but my mom is literally the greatest person you could ever meet. My mom is the most genuine, thoughtful, wise, and loving person I've ever known. She's there to speak wisdom to me when I need help, and she's there to comfort me when I'm hurting. She's the strongest woman, and she cares for our family so well. She's always been there for me, and she always will. She's the very best mom you could have ever trusted me to. I want you to know that I've never hated you or judged you for your decision. It was the very best decision you could have made for both of us. You picked the very best family for me to be a part of. So if you ever doubted or wondered if you did the right thing, know that you did. I was given the best life. I was raised being fiercely loved and protected. I never felt like an outsider or anything less than part of my family. I'm sure when you gave me up, you wanted to ensure stability, security, and love. I hope you know you gave me that and so much more. I think you would be proud of who I am and who I'm becoming. One day I hope to meet you and I want to show you the decision you made almost 18 years ago was the very best decision. There are no words to describe how deeply thankful I am to you. You gave me the greatest gift anyone on this earth has given me. You gave me the gift of life. You are my hero and I love you.